on anchor.fm. So if you're a drive time person and you want to just simply listen to our podcast, you can also listen at anchor.fm forward slash daring dialogues with a little bit of musical background as well. So again, tonight is Wednesday is relationship Wednesday where we talk all things relationship. Um, I just got a notice from one of our We Dare Squad members that his granddaughter is missing. Um, So if you want to put her name into the chat there, we will make sure that we lift her up in prayer. And also if you have a flyer or anything of that nature, we will put it out on the page as soon as we are done with the broadcast. So that way people can share it out. Uh, We do hope that she is found in good condition and well, and that nothing serious has happened. So tonight we are talking about relationships, and I am going to spend a little bit of time tonight both reading from the book All About Love by Bell Hooks. But before I get into reading, I want to talk a little bit about my father. So tonight we'll be talking about relationship in the sense of partners and also um, just sharing some memories about my own family. Um, This week, May 17th, is the anniversary of my father's passing. He passed away um, 10 years ago um, based on on the 17th and on the 22nd is when we laid him to rest. And I woke up this morning and I was really, it started kind of yesterday, but I was really kind of feeling like I wanted to play some basketball. And I was like, I don't want to do, you know, these little, I had this little basketball hoop in my downstairs and I just, you know, toss it around in the little mini hoop. But I was like, man, I was really feeling like getting out today and playing some ball as a way and as a form of exercise for me. Um, And so as I did that, I started to realize I was driving around town. It took me about a good hour to find a very obscure basketball court behind an elementary school that only um, only had one hoop. And that got me thinking about the redlining of communities and how in my community, because it is, I would say, predominantly white and predominantly um, Ashkenazim and a little bit of mix of German and Polish, it was very, very evident that there were no basketball courts. There are no basketball courts, real basketball courts in my neighborhood. And I got to thinking about that because the nearest basketball court to me would have took me into Baltimore City. Um, of course, which is highly populated with black people. (laughs) So I started thinking about, you know, how is it that even again with that conversation we had the other night about the architecture of cities and how certain things are missing to sort of discourage certain people from wanting to move to that particular place or that particular community. As I said, I was driving around for about an hour today just trying to find a basic basketball court that was not connected to a school, that was not, you know, with no trespassing signs or anything like that. There was one court, but it wasn't open yet. 
and it was like inside and you had to pay $10 in entrance fee to get in. But I found this court, it was behind the elementary school, attached to the elementary school. And as soon as I got to the court, there were kids already there, of course, because, you know, um, because of the way school is set up now, Wednesdays are the days that students are not in school. So they are supposed to be doing work, (laughs) but they were on the court today. So as I got there and, you know, I saw the kids, I started just, you know, doing some exercises with my ball, practicing my bouncing skills, practicing my crossovers, because I haven't been doing any of that in years. And um, it just got me to thinking. And the students there um, were very nice. They were probably middle school students, um, but they were very nice. They actually took a break from their game. And I just simply asked, hey, you know, hey, young kings, that's how I dress them. how, how much time are you all going to be out here on the court? You know, how much longer do you think you'll be? And they say, oh, we'll probably be out here till five. And I was like, okay. So I started, you know, doing my little practice on the side and had my water bottle and everything. And um, eventually they just kind of sort of start packing up their things. And I was like, oh, y'all are getting ready to go. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to take a break. So I got an opportunity to have an hour on the court with another gentleman who was there with his grandmother. And we began to talk and it was amazing because the very same thing that I was thinking as I was driving around town and on my way looking for a court was the very same thing that came out of her mouth about redlining and about not creating spaces for people of color to actually go out and have wholesome, healthy recreation through sports. Because a lot of the parks in my community, they have tennis courts, they have several tennis courts, they have baseball fields, very, very nicely done. They have a skateboard park, but there's no basketball courts. I'm like, really, are y'all, are y'all serious? No basketball courts? Like, what about all the kids that play basketball? in this community. You try and tell me we don't have no players? Hmm? And the only place they can play is in school? Maybe if their teacher has a basketball day or maybe if their school has a team. This is a whole problem. So I recognize this is a problem for my community. Um so I'm now thinking about ways to build relationship and build community by maybe just buying a piece of land, you know, maybe a quarter acre and getting it zoned and creating a basketball park that anybody can use and name it after a historically black figure in our community by the name of Augustus Wally, who was a Buffalo soldier. Um, That's gonna probably be my new project because I'm like, this is ridiculous. Where is the court, Lord? Where is the court? So as I got out there, and those of you who saw my page saw my little my little clip of me um, hitting hitting some points, hitting some shooters. Um, I stayed out there for about an hour, got my exercise in, and as I was walking off the court, it was like the presence of God just kind of came towards me. And I just felt the presence of God say, 
you were feeling that connection with your dad. And I was like, huh, you know what? You might be right. And it just took me for a moment, you know, I just kind of had to compose myself because um, growing up, I did not grow up with my father in the in the home. Um, I got a chance to see my father as I, you know, became older. I got a chance to build relationship with him. And there would be times when I would sneak and see my father when I was, you know, maybe five, six, seven. And then I got a chance to start sort of building relationship with my father when I was around 11. Um, I played basketball in a little bit in middle school and a little bit in high school, but nobody really told me that my father used to play. Like I didn't, I don't think I found that out until after I started playing basketball in high school. And I remember I was having a conversation with one of my, um, with my aunt and my grandmother. And they were telling me, you know, I knew the story around my birth and the controversy of my birth because my dad was a teen dad. He was 16 um, when my mom got pregnant with me. So he was, you know, in high school. He was well known. He was a star basketball player. From my understanding, you know, after listening to them, he had some scholarships. Um, They were expecting him to go on and play college basketball. And then I showed up (laughs) and sort of derailed that plan. He wound up being conscripted into the military illegally at 17. And he wound up going to the military and staying there, I think, for 11 months and 29 days. Whole story behind that. Um, They they let him out just under being able to receive permanent benefits. But he got out of the military and his life kind of went south from that point. So, yeah, I was like... When I was in high school, I was like, why did y'all like never tell me <laughs> that my dad was like a basketball star? Um, I didn't really get a reason from them as to why they never told me, but I don't know. Maybe they thought it would have upset me or something, but it would have been good to know that like before I got involved in doing sports, right? It kind of would have been good to know that. I'm trying to look through my pictures here to see if I can find a, a picture of him very quickly. I don't think I have it on this phone. I don't think I have it on this phone. But anyway, so at his funeral, I saw this uh, picture of him. We put it into his um, obituary where he was a high, he was in high school and he was in the papers and everything. And we have a picture of him from that time where he is playing. So that just brought back one of those wonderful, today just brought back one of those wonderful memories and having a connection with my father. Um, Nobody, again, nobody told me that my dad was like this superstar basketball player until I was playing basketball in high school myself. I didn't know. 
Anyway, my brothers, two of my brothers went on to play basketball. One went on to play college football for the Oklahoma Sooners. And yeah, I think I have a second cousin maybe who is now playing college ball. So basketball is one of those things that tends to run in my family. So I thoroughly enjoyed playing today. I enjoyed the connection. I enjoyed um, feeling connected to my father in that way. Then as I was preparing tonight, I started thinking about other ways that we sometimes are connected to our parents and we don't necessarily know or no one is is necessarily telling us these connections. So my other connection, since we're talking about my daddy, we're talking about my daddy for a few moments, okay? My other connection, let me see if you guys can see that. Can you, let me bring it down some. Can y'all see that? Even to this day, y'all see that right there? It's one of those, <laughs> it's one of those backup cars. So, I use this when I get fidgety or I'm listening to something. Maybe I'm listening to a lecture or a training or something like that. But I grew up while other girls were playing with Barbie dolls. I did eventually get into Barbie dolls, but I was obsessed. And I don't mean maybe, I was obsessed. The first toy I was ever obsessed with was Hot Wheels cars. I loved Hot Wheels cars, especially, oh, and don't give me a set of like the ones that was like the Corvette and the Chevy. Oh, and don't give me a set of Hot Wheels cars that had the little doors that opened and closed. What? I would build these little roadways and everything. And my mom would buy me sets of Hot Wheels cars, as many as I wanted. And I remember like overhearing somebody talking to my mom saying, um, why, why she got all those cards? Why, why you buying her that? That's, that's stuff for boys to play with. Right. And my mom was like, no, I'm going to let her play with whatever she wants to play with. I'm going to let her play with what interests her. Now, again, I'm like maybe four or five years old during this time. But I am obsessed with these little things, okay? (laughs) To this day, I still buy Hot Wheels cars and I do give them to um, young children for holiday gifts. Sometimes that's my little personalization. I might give them other stuff, but sometimes I will um, throw in a Hot Wheels car. So I didn't know, again, I didn't know at the time that my father was... Let's just say, before there was a Pimp My Ride, he was the epitome of of that. Before there was a show about people like building cars from scratch, like my dad could build an engine and he could build a car from scratch. He did it all the time. But again, I didn't know this when I was a kid. Um, But that was what he loved to do. He would build a build an engine, build a car from scratch. He could build yachts from scratch. Um, people would put him up, like people from different countries would bring him over 
and have him build their custom cars. And he would stay gone for a little bit, build their custom cars and come back. Um, But that was what he did. He would build yachts from scratch. He would build custom cars. He would repair cars. But he was also a visual artist. And so he would not only build the cars from scratch, but he would custom do all of the custom colors and designs and the bowling ball paint and the um, airbrush, you know, images and things of that nature. That's what my father did up until his passing um, at 49. So again, that side of me or that piece of my DNA that was within was coming out even when I was a little child and I didn't know what it was about. I didn't quite understand what it was about, but my mother did which is why she didn't stop me from playing with cars. Just putting that out there for all the parents. A little hint, hint. She didn't stop me from playing with cars. This was something that was in my DNA. And I think it's probably, looking back, it's probably one of the things that I, that I maybe... I would say I have a little bit of regret about is not because I would hang out with my dad. I would sometimes go to the shop where he was working, but I never really got into that part of his life in terms of learning about cars and learning about how to build a car from scratch and all of that. I just really, um, thank you, Pastor Ben. I just really admired his work and his work ethic and his design ability. Um, My father went on to do the detailing for the cars on Miami Vice. So you remember Miami Vice with Don Johnson and uh, what's his name? Philip Michael Thomas. My father was responsible for keeping those cars on the show in mint condition. So anytime I see old clips of Miami Vice in that white vehicle, that white car, I get a chance to see my father's work memorialized through film. So that's a little bit about my relationships and my um, thinking on today. Um, Just meditating and thinking about family relationships and the things that we are connected to, the things that come out of us, the things that grow out of us that's connected to our DNA in ways that sometimes we don't understand when it's happening, but it's there. And we have a choice, right? Whether or not to explore those innate giftings that's connected to our DNA. We have an opportunity to explore those things or to let them lie fallow or to acknowledge them and give some honor and some tribute to them in certain ways, but we may not go into those fields, right? I didn't become (laughs) a next generation of pimp my writers. That would have been cool, but that's not the route that I chose to go. So I am still a visual artist, but I'm just a visual artist in a different way. And because of that, I still get to honor that part of my Uh, family history 
and that part of my DNA. Um, so Pastor Ben, we want to definitely, we will definitely lift up Akela uh, Maxwell, who is missing. And if you can, if you can send us an image, please send us an image, send message me an image, um, PM me an image, and I will get that up once our show is done. All right. Thank you for letting me know. The reading tonight is all about love by Bell Hooks. And we are in the chapter called Mutuality, the Heart of Love, chapter nine. We are on page 158. We've been talking about emotional vulnerability. And now we're going to continue that talk about conflict arising in relationships. I got a chance, as I said, I met a new friend today while I was out on the court. And one of the things that she said, um, as I began to share with her um, about my coaching business and about the sessions that we've just completed called God Design Relationships, we completed in April, she started talking about the vulnerability that women feel, especially if they have not been in a relationship for a very long time and the, and the feeling of fear that many have in terms of re-entering that world. Do they have what it takes to re-enter that world if they have not been in on the relationship scene for a while? And I thought it was a very, um, very good question to ask. And she said she felt like she was not confident enough to re-enter that world. She's single. She's in her early 50s. She's in pretty good, you know, physical health and shape. But she said, I don't feel confident enough to re-engage. Think about that for yourself today. If you are in a place where you are not in a relationship right now, do you feel comfortable enough to re-engage? Or is what's happening in society right now so time consuming that you don't feel like you can engage. Um, I've seen some very concerning commentary and concerning advice being given to women, particularly black women. Um, that's very, I don't know, problematic, one-sided. Maybe some advice being given from people who are not in healthy relationships themselves, but people are listening to them. I don't understand the logic of that, but nevertheless, here we are. So let's jump into mutuality, the heart of love. I'll read until uh, I find a good stopping place. I think I think I can find a good stopping place, or I might be able to read to the end. So let's see what we can do in the next 10 minutes. M. Scott Peck's treaty, The Road Less Traveled, highlighted and affirmed the importance of commitment. Discipline and devotion are necessary to the practice of love, all the more so when relationships are just beginning. Peck writes, whether it be shallow or not, commitment is the foundation the bedrock of any genuinely loving relationship. Deep commitment does not guarantee the success of the relationship, but does help more than any other factor to ensure it. 
Anyone who is truly concerned for the spiritual growth of another knows, consciously or instinctively, that he or she can significantly foster that growth only through a relationship of constancy. Living in a culture where we are encouraged to seek a quick release from any pain or discomfort has fostered a nation of individuals who are easily devastated by emotional pain, however relative. When we face pain in relationships, our first response is often to sever bonds rather than to maintain commitment. Ooh, child. (laughs) Ready to cut and run at the first emotional pain. When conflict arises within us or between us and other individuals, when we walk on love's path, it is disheartening, especially when we cannot easily right our difficulties. In the case of romantic relationships, many people fear getting trapped in a bond that is not working, so they flee at the onset of conflict, or they self-indulgingly create unnecessary conflict as a way to avoid commitment. They flee from love before they feel its grace. Ooh-wee. Pain may be the threshold they must cross to partake of love's bliss. Running from the pain, they never know the fullness of love's pleasure. False notions of love teach us that it is the place where we will feel no pain, where we will be in a state of constant bliss. We have to expose the falseness of these beliefs to see and accept the reality that suffering and pain do not end when we begin to love. In some cases, we are making the slow journey back from lovelessness to love. Our suffering may actually become more intense. As the lyrics of old time spirituals testify, weeping may endure for a night, but joy will come in the morning. Acceptance of pain is part of loving practice. It enables us to distinguish constructive suffering from self-indulgent hurt. When love's promise has never been fulfilled in our lives, it is perhaps the most difficult practice of love to trust that the passage through the painful abyss will lead to paradise. Guy Pernod suggests in Lessons in Love that many men are so fearful of feeling the emotional pain that has been locked away inside them for so long that they willingly choose a life of lovelessness. A good number of men, he writes, simply decide not to commit themselves because they cannot face dealing with the emotional pain of love and the conflict it engenders. Women are often belittled for trying to resurrect these men and bring them back to life and to love. They are, in fact, the real sleeping beauties. We might be living in a world that would be even more alienated and violent if caring women did not do the work of teaching men who have lost touch with themselves, how to live again. This labor of love is futile only when the men in question refuse to awaken or refuse growth. At this point, it is a gesture of self-love for women to break their commitment and move on. Women have endeavored to guide men to love because patriarchal thinking has sanctioned this work even as it has undermined it by teaching men to refuse the guidance. It sets up a gendered arrangement in which men are more likely to get their emotional needs met, while women will be deprived. 
Getting your emotional needs met helps create greater psychological well-being. As a consequence, men are given an advantage that neatly coincides with the patriarchal insistence that they are superior and therefore better suited to rule others. Were women's emotional needs met, where mutuality the norm, male domination might lose its allure. Sadly, the men's movement that emerged in response to the feminist critique of sexist masculinity often encouraged men to get in touch with their feelings, but to share them only in a safe context, usually only with other men and not with the person that would be their counterpart. Robert Bly, a major leader of this movement, had little to say about men and love. Men in the movement did not urge one another to look to enlightened women for guidance in the way of love. Those who choose to walk in love's path are well served if they have a guide. That guide can enable us to overcome fear if we trust that they will not lead us astray or abandon us along the way. I am always amazed by how much courageous trust we offer strangers. We get sick and enter hospitals where we put our trust in a collective body of people who we don't know, who we hope will make us well. Yet we often fear placing our emotional trust in caring individuals who may have been faithful friends all of our lives. This is simply misguided thinking and it must be overcome if we are to be transformed by love. The practice of love takes time. Without a doubt, the way we work in this society leaves individuals with little time when they are not physically and emotionally tired to work on the art of loving. How many times do we hear anyone say that they were working so hard and had no time for love, so they had to cut back or even leave a job to make a space to be loving? While movies like Regarding Henry and the Fisher King spend sentimental narratives about ruling class men suffering life-threatening illnesses that lead them to reevaluate how they spend their time, in real life we have yet to see abundant examples of either powerful men or women pausing to create a place to do the work of love in their lives. Certainly, individuals who love someone who is more preoccupied by work feel immense frustration when they endeavor to guide their partner in the way of love. Truly, there would be no unemployment problem in our nation if our taxes subsidized schools where everyone could learn to love. Job sharing could become the norm. With love at the center of our lives, work would have a different meaning and focus. When we practice love, we want to give more. Selfishness, a refusal to give acceptance to another, is a central reason romantic relationships fail. In Love the Way You Want It, Robert Sternberg confirms, If I were asked the single most frequent cause of the destruction of relationships, I would say it is selfishness. We live in an age of narcissism, and many people have never learned or have forgotten how to listen to the needs of others. The truth is, if you want to make just one change in yourself that will improve your relationship literally overnight, it would be to put your partner's interest on an equal footing with your own. Giving generously in romantic relationships and in all other bonds means recognizing when the other person needs our attention. 
Attention is an important resource. Generous sharing of all resources is one concrete way to express love. These resources can be time, attention, material objects, skills, money, etc. Once we embark on love's path, we see how easy it is to give. A useful gift all love practitioners can give is the offering of forgiveness. It only allows us to move away from blame, from seeing others as the cause of our sustained lovelessness, but it enables us to experience agency or freedom, to know we can be responsible for giving and finding love. We need not blame others for feelings of lack, for we know how to attend to them. We know how to give ourselves love and to recognize the love that is all around us. Much of the anger and rage we feel about emotional lack is released when we forgive ourselves and others. Forgiveness opens us up and prepares us to receive love. It prepares the way for us to give wholeheartedly. Giving brings us into communion with everyone. It is one way for us to understand that there is truly enough of everybody for everybody. In the Christian tradition, we are told that giving opens the windows of heaven so that we can be offered a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive. In patriarchal society, men who want to break with domination can best begin the practice of love by being giving and generous. This is why feminist thinkers extol the virtues of male parenting. Working as caregivers to young children, many men are able to experience for the first time the joy that comes from service. Through giving to each other, we learn how to experience mutuality. To heal the gender war rooted in struggles for power, women and men choose to make mutuality the basis of their bond, ensuring that each person's growth matters and is nurtured. It enhances our power to know joy. In the book, A Heart As Wide As The World, Sharon Salzberg reminds us, the practice of generosity frees us from the sense of isolation that arises from clinging and attachment. Cultivating a generous heart is the primary quality of an awakened mind. Strengthens the romantic bonds. Giving is the way we also learn how to receive. The mutual practice of giving and receiving is an everyday ritual when we know true love. A generous heart is always open, always ready to receive our going and coming. In the midst of such love, we need never fear abandonment. This is the most precious gift that true love offers, the experience of knowing we always belong. So, giving is healing to the spirit. We are admonished by spiritual tradition to give gifts to those who would know love. Love is an action. It's a participatory emotion. Whether we are engaged in the process of self-love or of loving others, we must move beyond the realm of feeling to actualize love. This is why it is useful to see love as a practice. When we act, we need not feel inadequate or powerless. We can trust that there are concrete steps to take on love's path. We learn to communicate, to be still and listen to the needs of our hearts, and we learn to listen to others. We learn compassion by willing to hear the pain as well as the joy of those we love. The path to love is not hidden. It's not taxing, but we must choose to take the first step. 
If we do not know the way, there is always a loving spirit with an enlightened open mind able to show us how to take the path that leads to the heart of love, the path that lets us return to love. So, Lord willing, next week we'll be in chapter 10, Romance, Sweet Love, as Anita Baker would say. All right. If you would like to share tonight, I'm going to try to, Pastor Ben, I'm going to try to bring you in first this time. I don't see a camera for you. Um, we're going to try to get you in. If you're listening for the first time, I want to say thank you for tuning in. If you are listening by anchor.fm, I want to thank you for your time and attention. You can always choose to leave us a voice message and we will listen in on that message. Or you can always join us on Daring Dialogues page on Facebook at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Monday through Friday, with the exception of Tuesday, where we're on Black Table Talks Facebook page. Again, thank you for listening. Take care and God bless.